You know, I'm preparing for this week and this topic of this sermon for this morning and this idea of celebration and rejoicing and then listening to Adam, you know, just play through that song and sing those words. We have an awful lot to praise about, don't we? Understand that we live in a world, and I said this in Bible study, we live in a world that's pretty chaotic and pretty turbulent, and our lives are filled with a lot of uncertainty and fear and worry, but with a whole, whole lot more to worship about and to praise about and to celebrate about, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we move through several scriptures. Um, talk about Bible study group this morning that when I originally came to the text for this morning and started studying it the early part of this week, I kind of just like crossed my arms and I thought to myself, what am I going to do with this as to what our theme is? But as I studied more and more, it became apparent to me what, what God was doing in this topic and this theme of the celebration, that we celebrate together in the life of the church, and we celebrate best when we celebrate together in the life of the church, and so we're going to kind of launch off in that this morning, but I just think about all of the elements and things that we do in a service that really have us thinking about what God has done for us and rejoicing in that and the celebrations that we have and what a great example of that that right before this we celebrate the Lord's Supper and sometimes we don't often think of that as a celebration because we most of the time treat it pretty somber like like it's almost like every time we come to communion we're like celebrating a, a we're like coming to a funeral again it's like that's that's a point in a moment where we should be rejoicing the most for what God has done for us we take it with seriousness, we treat it with seriousness, but we are celebrating in that moment. We celebrate in our worship and our praise and the service. We celebrate in the giving and the offerings of our, of our tithes, our offerings, our gifts to God, all of these ways in the service that we do that. But I had this observation, and it's just my personal observation, but I think it's a pretty solid one, and I want you to see what you think about this. I said this to my Bible study group this morning, that it's my experience that as a whole, on the whole, the church doesn't always do a really great job of celebrating along the way in our journey together. And sure, we have certain celebrations set in stone, things like Christmas and things by, like Easter, but what about smaller moments? What about so smaller milestones in the life of the church when something great has happened or something great has been achieved in the life of the church or somebody in their life has experienced the goodness and the blessing of God? Do we do a really great job of celebrating with one another? And I think what happens, I made this observation this week, I was with a group of ministers and we were talking about this idea and concept I think what happens in the church is that we are so often consumed and focused on what we're doing. We're so often consumed on the next thing that we have to get done, the next mountain to conquer, that we often forget to remember what has been done. We're always just forward thinking, we're forward charging, and we're just going full steam ahead that we don't realize and recognize and remember this is what God has done. It's what God has done in our lives, in the life of our church. Guys, as we, as we look back and as God's people before us looked back in the events of Scripture that we celebrate, they celebrated God's goodness and faithfulness. 
His goodness and His faithfulness to His people as they have their feasts and as they have their celebrations, especially in the life of Israel, we'll see this constantly in the Old Testament. And by reorienting our lives around the story of God and what He's doing, His works, and in Jesus and the church and in the Spirit and His movement in the church today, we discover that we have so much to celebrate. That would have been a moment you've been like, yeah, yeah, amen, buddy. Woohoo! You guys are just like, come on. I'll say it again, like I didn't say, we have so much to celebrate. There you go, thank you. It's all right if you like get excited about things in the church. After all, as we look at scripture, didn't God himself celebrate? Throughout the creation narrative, God creates and God observes. And as Genesis continually proclaims, what does it say that God does? It says God saw it and he saw that it was good. That's God's moment of saying, oh yes, look what I'm doing here. He saw that it was good. And after God saw that it was good and what he created was good, do you know what God continued to do? He continued to just keep on creating. Guys, if we take time to celebrate what has been done, what God has been creating in the midst of us and among us, it can lead us forward into ever greater things. It's why pastor and writer Sam Rayner says this about celebrations. He says, celebrations by design focus on the moment at hand or on a past event. However, celebrations are also leading indicators of where a church is going. I'll say that again. Celebrations and celebration of the life of the church is an indicator of where the church is going, where we are going as God's people. Now listen to what he says here. Examine what an individual congregation celebrates, and you will likely uncover the future culture of that church. So by proxy if you have a church that just uh, you can kind of tell what that church is going to be in the future right uh, boring and tired and as we talked about last week not growing and dead but if you have a church that celebrates life and celebrates what we're going to talk about largely this morning you have a church that is set up well for the future the culture of that church is strong it is vibrant it is growing it is healthy and in my quick survey of Scripture, and this is what we're going to try to do here really quick, is I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an outlay of Scripture and what it says about joy and celebration. And we've already talked about it a little bit. We started it that there is joy and celebration in the beginning of all things. In the book of Genesis, there's joy and celebration, not just in the book of Genesis, but in all, especially the first five books of the Bible, we call that the Pentateuch or the Torah. Listen to the joy and the rejoicing and the celebration in the rest of the beginning books of the Bible, in the establishing of a nation. Celebration, guys, and rejoicing are baked into the earliest parts of Israel's formation as a nation. For instance, Exodus chapter 12 Verses 14 and 47, it says this. This is the establishing of the Passover as a feast and a festival that the Israelites would celebrate. This is a day to remember. 
each year from generation to generation. Now listen to this. It says not just think about this, not maybe, maybe do this. It says you must. You must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. Again, similarly in verse 47, it says the whole community. Again, catch what this is saying here. Not just isolated individual little parties and woo-hahs that we're having. The whole community of Israel must celebrate this Passover festival. There is something that happens when we collectively come together, and in our collectively coming together, we celebrate, and we cheer, and we praise, and we rejoice. Exodus 23, I don't have scripture up here, but just in Exodus 23, there is the setting of three annual festivals in addition to the Sabbath day that they celebrated. There was the Passover. There was what they called sometimes the first harvest, or it came to be known as the Feast of Weeks. And then there was a celebration of the final harvest, or what came to be known as the Festival of Ingathering, and then later the Feast of Shelters, or Tabernacles. Those were the three main festivals that were celebrated in the life of Israel. Others begin to appear over time as the nation grows and expands geographically and in their life of worship. These set celebrations are a good indication of the need to remember. That's what it said here in Exodus 12. Remember. I want you to remember what God has done. And as you remember what God has done, celebrate and rejoice. Again, similarly in Deuteronomy chapter 12, in several verses there in Deuteronomy 12, starting with verse 7, it says, boom, there. There you, now again, I want you to listen to, to, to the context of this. Not just you, but you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God, and you will, what's that word right there? What is, no, what is that word right there? Oh, there we go. Say it happy, all right? You will rejoice in all that you have accomplished. And if it stopped right there, that'd be pretty self-centered, wouldn't it? But it doesn't stop there. All that you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. He says in verse 12, continuing on, you must celebrate there in the presence of the Lord your God with your sons and with your daughters and all your servants. Again, this community context, remember to include the Levites who live in your towns for they receive no allotment of land among you. And then finally in verse 18, he says this, you must eat these in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Eat them there with your children and your servants and the Levites who live in your towns, celebrating in the presence of the Lord your God in all you do. We are called, the people of God are called from the earliest points of Scripture to remember and rejoice in what God has done. But we also understand this about Israel's history, don't you guys, that the number of times in Israel's history where they forget to remember the Lord. They forget to celebrate the goodness and the faithfulness of their God. What happens to God's people when they forget? They lose their way, don't they? They wander in the wilderness, don't they? And what happens when they return to what the Lord has ordained and designed for them? They are put back on the path to praise. We get a glimpse of that in the next era of the Bible during the kings and, and in First and Second Samuel and in First and Second Chronicles. We get this era. I call this not joy and celebration in the beginning, but joy and celebration rediscovered. 
Listen to the chronicler record what happens at many points when Israel finds the heart of their worship and their celebration again. 1 Chronicles 16 is a biggie. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 4 says this. No, I don't have the power to do that. Is 1 Chronicles 16.4 there? Yes, it is, she says. She, just, she, was, she was asleep there for a moment, folks. <laughs> oh, boy. It says, David appointed. This is a moment, guys, you will remember this in Israel's history, if you remember Old Testament history very well, that the, the ark of the Lord had been taken from Israel. And they, at this point here in 1 Chronicles 16, are getting the ark of the Lord back. And David is celebrating in that. It says, David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord to invoke his blessings, to give thanks, to give praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. That sets up everything that happens here in 1 Chronicles 16. Starting at verse 8 through verse 13, it says this. Give thanks to the Lord. This is a long praise hymn that David gives in the middle of a place that we would ordinarily think there's not really much going on here in 1 Chronicles 16. Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him. Yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exult in his holy name. Rejoice. There is that word again. Rejoice you who worship the Lord. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Continually seek him. Remember the wonders that he has performed, his miracles and the rulings he has given. You children of his servant Israel, you descendants of Jacob, his holy one. There is a moment in 2 Chronicles 23 where the king at the time, Hezekiah, rediscovers some of the things that they have forgotten about, some of the worship that they have lost in the life of Israel. He returns them to their roots. But guys, it's not just in the schedule, the fixed, the holidays and the observances and the festivals that we celebrate or that Israel celebrated. Guys, listen to this. We are called, we should, we must celebrate and rejoice and have joy in every season and in every moment of life that we gather as the church. Like every Sunday, like I cannot express this, guys. And sometimes I know I come in here and I'm just a grumpy lumps. I'm just like, man, just not having a good day. Boy, my land, any time that we set foot in here, any time that you and your life and your individual worship every single day of your life, remember what God has done for us, it should invoke and it should compel in us worship and praise and adoration celebration in our lives. Guys, because we are the people of God, because we have become the people of God by the grace of God, there is never a moment that we can't celebrate what He has done. What does that tell you in your life? What should you be doing in every single moment of your life? Now that looks really weird to the world, doesn't it? Because guess what? Life is not perfect. Life falls apart. Life is hard and life is painful. But as we're going to see later on this morning, as we read out of our text for this morning, even in our worst moments, God is working big things that allow us to go, yes, and celebrate. 
because of what God has done in our lives. And in much of the Bible, what happens, what I've noticed as I read through, and as I read through and did this survey of the Bible this week, is that our redemption and our restoration is what prompts our rejoicing. You ever need in your life to be like, you know what, what should I, re- what, sh- what do I have to rejoice about, Ryan? Have you been redeemed? Have you been saved? Has the gospel massively changed your life? Rejoice in that and don't stop rejoicing in that. So, uh, Psalm 85, 6, David says very famously and very well there in Psalm 85, 6. Won't you, God, revive us again so that your people can rejoice in you? Guys, that... That verse is as true today as it was thousands of years ago when David penned it. Perhaps what we need most in the life of the church is what we really need God to revive us again so that we can praise and rejoice and rightly worship Him. Guys, we'll talk about the Psalms a little bit more later, but for an appetizer, if you're still needing some convincing that rejoicing and celebration are a highlight of the Bible, look no further than the book of Psalms, where the idea of rejoicing is explicitly spoken over 40 times in the book of Psalms, in all of the Psalms. In Psalms, we have joy and celebration reflected on, David's musings and his remembrances of God's faithfulness and goodness. And then we move into one of the most painful times in all of Israel's history, into the exile, into the time of the prophets. That includes Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and all of those minor prophets that we get lost in, where sadly joy and celebration are lost in the exile. There's mourning. Seems like there's nothing to really celebrate. But every so often in these books and in this time and this period of Israel, there are glimpses of a people reminded that God is good even when life doesn't seem to be. That redemption and restoration that I mentioned a bit ago is the hallmark of many of these books. In fact, let me tell you about a a big section here in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, verse 9 It is written there, if I can turn to properly. There we go. Isaiah 25, verse 9 says this. Why can't I? I tell you guys, thin pages in Bibles are just not kind to people. There we go. Isaiah 25, 9. In that day the Lord will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation He brings. Isaiah 49, 13, Sing for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst in song, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on them in their suffering. Isaiah 63, 7, I will tell of the Lord's unfailing love. I will praise the Lord for all that He has done. I will rejoice in His great goodness to Israel, which He has granted according to His mercy and His love. Zechariah, one of the prophets, one of the last books of the Old Testament, announces it in one of the most famous messianic prophecies that we know, Zechariah Chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, 
Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and he is victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And then we have in the book of Nehemiah, and you know the story of Nehemiah, that he comes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and he struggles through that, and he struggles with the people, and he struggles with foes on the outside of that. But in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, Nehemiah says, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our God. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then we move into the New Testament where the Gospels and the letters are filled with evidences of the praise of God's people. We get to see joy and celebration in the life of the church, which is where we'll largely spend our time this morning. You turn and you look at a section in some Scripture like Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, we get this story of the parable of the three servants where the master gives to these three servants differing amounts of money. And they expand these talents and they expand this money and it says, listen to this. I don't know if you've ever caught this before in this parable. It says in verse 21 of Matthew 25, he comes to the first servant and it says, the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. And then what does he say to get there? Let's celebrate together. Verse 23, he goes to another servant and says the exact same thing. You have been well done, good and faithful servant. You've been very faithful in what I've given you here, and I will give you more. Let's celebrate together. One of the greatest moments here in the New Testament, the early parts of the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. You remember Luke chapter 1 because it gives us the birth of Jesus. And specifically in Luke chapter 1, we get this wonderful song of praise from Mary. And she says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then what's very interesting as it comes to the birth of John the Baptist Elizabeth's son, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 58, when Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her after a time of her not being able to have children, what does it say there? Everyone rejoiced with her. And on and on and on it goes throughout the New Testament. We don't have time to talk about this morning, but if you go through all of the Gospels and all of the letters, we arrive at the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. And in, in Revelation, what we have is joy and celebration consummated forever and ever and ever. The celebration will never end in the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, so much of the focus of joy and rejoicing and celebration scripture-wide is framed in the context, wouldn't you know it, of corporate worship. All of us coming together. A body gathered, rejoicing and celebrating the glory and the faithfulness of God. Guys, rejoicing is very personal, but it's very community-centered in scripture, which leads me to believe, guys, this. 
We need to know this. We rejoice best when we rejoice together as a community. And this is where I want to zero in just a bit this morning because this is the conundrum that we often find ourselves in. I mentioned in my opening comments that we really sometimes don't know how to celebrate very well. We don't know how to rejoice. And why is that a problem? Why in the world am I talking about this idea of celebration and rejoicing? Well, guys, it's because the Bible commands us to rejoice. Not just suggests, not just gives a light little idea that we should. It commands that we should rejoice. Again, in one of Paul's most famous phrases and most famous verses that he has, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, what in the world does he say? Always be full of joy in the Lord. And I say it again, just in case you didn't catch it, rejoice. Again, probably in some of your translations, it says more familiarly to you, rejoice in the Lord. When? When? Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, Paul said it over and over and over again. Rejoice. And as one author observes, when it comes to Paul's command to rejoice, when it comes to all of Scripture's very clear picture that it gives of our need to rejoice and to celebrate or to have joy is he makes three observations, and I think they're really three great observations. One, and I would believe this to be true of every person in this room this morning, all of us desire more joy in our lives. Correct? Okay, I'm looking around. There are some head nods. There's probably one stubborn person out there going, nah. You need joy more than anybody else in this room. (laughs) All Christians, I'm actually convinced of this, not just all Christians and not all believers, I believe all people on this earth desire more joy. Largely, guys, because, again, we are called and commanded to be joyful. The second observation this author makes is that God wants and God expects us to experience joy. Wow, let's put those two things together. We want joy, and then guess what? Novel idea. God wants us to have joy in our lives. Again, God is not a meanie God that says, I just want to make your life so insufferable. No, it's the direct opposite in Scripture. He says, I want you to have joy, and I want you to have joy in life abundantly more than you could possibly ever imagine. We want joy. God wants us to have joy. But here is the really tragic thing, guys, and this is what I want to focus on for a bit. The level of joy in most believers, in most of us in this room, is either just staying the same, or even more tragically, it's diminishing and going away. You just think about your life for a moment and how joyful you are in your life. Sadly enough, for most believers, it's just ebbing away. They're finding less and less reasons to be And God wants us to have that joy. Here is the question for this morning. Why are we missing out on that joy? 
Why are we missing out on the opportunity to celebrate? Why aren't we rejoicing more? Why haven't we figured out how to celebrate as believers, especially in the life of the church? And to help answer that question, I want to spend some time, if you are still in those Bibles there, go to Acts chapter 16. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time this morning. And as I said at the beginning, when I arrived in Acts chapter 16 to begin studying this week, I was a bit confused initially. On the surface, this especially opening story doesn't seem to have much to do with community and our need to celebrate together. But as I studied more and more through Acts chapter 16 and what it has to say about rejoicing, there are three stories we find in Acts chapter 16, and they have the textbook pieces and the foundational elements for what causes us to have more joy. Do you want more joy in your life, boys and girls? All right, and I'm not doing this as like the smile cheesy preacher. You guys want more joy? No, it's right here, Acts chapter 16. And guys, here's the deal. It's not rocket science. It's actually very, very basic. So would you go with me to Acts 16, starting in verse 11? Here's what it says. And we're going to read straight through, and we're going to break this down a bit. We, and that we means Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. And from there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. She was a believer in God, at least the basic idea of God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying, and she and her household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Continuing on. And one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. And she earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Paul has like his own little like hype squad following him all around. Like promo, like promotional person following around. This guy right here, listen to him. This went on day after day after day until Paul got so exasperated and annoyed and put out by it, that, she, that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. And so a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Now I just want to stop there for a moment, because sometimes I think when we, when we hear that, that they were stripped and they were beaten with wooden rods, we don't get the full force of what this really means. 
talked a little bit about this at Bible study on Thursday, that any time, most times actually in the New Testament, that you hear about somebody being flogged or beaten with a rod or some sort, it didn't mean just like a little slap across the wrist with a ruler. It often meant continuous beating with a rod that wasn't a, a solid rod. It was actually many sticks that were, they were attached together. And so these sticks inflicted massive, massive pain on people. The word actually that's used here and many times when it talks about flogging means that it would, you would flay open the skin. To cut or to flay open the skin. A person's back would be opened up. Lacerations would come. Massive bleeding. Massive bruising. This is not just a little slap across the wrist. Now keep that in mind as we go in the story. That's very, very important. They were beaten and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. And so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the socks. They are in solitary confinement, boys and girls. Extreme situation here. But then listen what happens. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were, what? They were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake. No coincidence, by the way. I've heard some people like try to explain this way. Well, you know, like that area was really known for earthquake. Look, really? Come on. Really? They're praying and they're singing and it just so happens in an earthquake. Now listen to this earthquake, what it does. An earthquake happens and the prison was shaken to its foundation. And all the doors didn't just like creak open. It says they immediately fly open and the chains of every single prisoner fall off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open and he assumed the prisoner to escape, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Oh, that it would be this simple all the time. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I have never in my life that I can remember in a call, had anybody run up to me and say, Ryan, what do I have to do to be saved? That's called a softball, boys and girls, a spiritual softball. And they replied very simply. You want a really simple explanation of the gospel and how somebody's life begins to change? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. Now there's, a lot, there's, there's some more along with that, right? But that was enough in that moment for that man to be saved, along with everyone else in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with this man and with all who lived in his household. And even at that hour, and remember it's midnight, so it's probably going on like 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock, possibly even 3 o'clock in the morning, the jailer cared for Paul and Silas and washed their wounds. The very man who had incarcerated them, potentially the man who had beaten these guys, is now he has them in his house and he's caring for them. Guys, that's the gospel. He cared for them and he washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and he set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. 
Guys, there were likely many conversions in the weeks that these guys spent in Philippi during this missionary visit. But Luke records three stories here in Acts 16 alone. And he probably does that, and he likely does that, to display how God breaks down dividing barriers and how he can unite anyone in Christ, people who are very different people. And we have three very different people here, don't we? As these encounters should encourage us and they should cause us to rejoice as we behold the power of Jesus through the gospel to completely transform lives. He did it then and he is still doing it today. Guys, there are in this story three very different types of people. There are three events and locations that it happens, but there is one Savior over and above it all. Guys, the way that we find and rediscover our joy in life is that we have to find the right focus in life. We have to be looking at the right things in life. And Acts 16 has all the ingredients of what that entails. Guys, the most essential, the most basic aspect of recovering and rejoicing in the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus comes in understanding this. The foundation of our joy, the bedrock of our rejoicing, is in the gospel alone. Try as you might in this life to find your joy and your satisfaction and your fulfillment in anything else, and it will always come up empty. Find your joy and your satisfaction in the gospel, now you've got something. Chris Bronze writes in a book called Bound Together, he explains this fact very, very well. In his chapter on joy, he says this, When we consider that though we were born sinners and by nature we are children of wrath, if we accept the eternal life offered to us in Jesus Christ, we are no longer condemned. And he says this, This news, that news right there has to result in celebration. You ever want to know what to celebrate in life? Celebrate about that. You were once very, very, very far away from God in a way that I can't even possibly express. But that He has brought you near in the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That has to result in celebration. Guys, the gospel is the bedrock of joy. And so when the gospel is diminished, he says, joy is diminished too. Do you want to know why people have less and less joy in life? Because they are diminishing the gospel in their life. How do you diminish the gospel? How does the gospel become diminished in any life or in any church? When the gospel is not understood clearly? When it's moved aside in favor of other things, and especially that I can do this myself, I can work myself to God, that's when the gospel becomes diminished. And the gospel is diminished when we accept that anything besides God will satisfy our hearts. Another writer says this, and I really want you to listen to this. This is so, so insightful. Within the church of the living God, we must become excited and celebrate the gospel. That is the chief form of our celebration, the gospel. That's how we pass on our heritage. If instead the gospel increasingly becomes something we assume that's not of first importance, as Paul would say, then we will, of course, focus on a lot of other things. 
We will focus on a form of worship. We will focus on a style of counseling. We will focus on a view of culture. We will focus on a technique in preaching. You see all this in the church. Oh, I didn't really like that. It wasn't really my cup of tea. That's what happens when the gospel becomes diminished. Then ultimately what we do is we make those things a center and that generation after us loses the gospel. Listen to this, what he says. Guys, as soon as you get to the place, as soon as a church gets to the place where the gospel is simply just assumed that you stop celebrating the gospel, you are only one generation away from death in the church. As soon as you lose your source of joy, you are on a downward trajectory. Guys, if the gospel is the bedrock to our joy and our rejoicing, then the flourishing of our joy as we see here in Acts chapter 16, the flourishing where it really comes to fruition, we get the full fruit of it, our joy is found in the salvation of others. That's where we really get excited about things. And that's what Acts 16 is largely about, guys, right? A celebration of changed lives. And what we learn about these three lives is that changed lives come in all shapes and sizes. All kinds of different people here. A woman who is very well-to-do. A servant girl who is possessed by a demon. A Philippian jailer who held a great deal of responsibility. But he's still a Gentile. He's just kind of a footnote in the scheme of salvation. And yet, as wildly different as all these individuals are here in Acts chapter 16, the truth remains the same. They all found salvation. Or better yet, I would say it this way, salvation found them. Guys, that's the thing that sticks out to me when I read through Acts 16 here, particularly in the story of the Philippian jailer and how I know something greater was on the mind of Paul and Silas. It says they're, they're praying and they're singing hymns. And it says an earthquake comes and they're freed from all of their chains. This is the ultimate escape plan, boys and girls. They could have escaped to them, but to them, the lives of other people were more important than their own personal freedom and comfort. And in not escaping, they show tremendous discernment. Everything in this moment, at this time, when the chains fall off of their wrists, when they're out of the stocks, everything in this moment screams, escape, get out of here, now. But love says in that moment, stay for the sake of this one soul, this Philippian jailer. They weren't guided merely by their circumstances, but by what love compelled them to do. It's what Jesus says in his famous parable that he would leave the 99 to go search out one. And what's it say in that story? That when he finds that one sheep and he brings it back home, he will rejoice over it. Rejoice. Celebrate over it more than the 99 that didn't wander away. You want to know what causes joy is our celebrating in the changed lives of people around us. Guys, so impressive in this story with Paul and Silas is, again, this jailer runs to Paul and Silas. He runs up and he says, what must I do to be saved. Guys, this is how God wants our lives to be lived, that we would be natural magnets drawing people to Him. Our Christianity should make others want what we have with God. 
The jailer was so impressed by Paul and Silas, by the love that they, that they showed to him and from their ability to take joy even in the worst possible situation that he instantly wanted the kind of life that Paul and Silas had. Guys, these ha- Paul and Silas had every possible thing to complain about, to moan about, to whine about. Ugh, have you tasted the food in here? Ugh, do you smell how bad it is in here? Ugh, like in the inner dungeon, really? We couldn't even have a little bit of moonlight? Ugh, on and on. They had everything to whine about in this moment, but they don't. Instead, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? That they are praying and they are singing hymns of praise to God. And in all of that, someone has noticed and they have commented on it, that in this moment, Paul isn't sulking, he's singing. He's not pouting, he's praising. Why? Why would someone do that in the worst possible situation, guys? It's because he had the right focus. He is grounded in the gospel. He is consumed for the good of others. Folks, Paul and Silas were imprisoned in maximum security conditions. They had every right, every possibility to be mired in joylessness. But as the early church father, Tertullian, has said it very, very well, he says this, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in and it is focused on heaven, on eternal things. That's what causes our rejoicing. Guys, what causes you in your life to stop praising God? What causes you in your life to stop rejoicing God? What causes you in your life to stop celebrating God? Let's just admit it very flatly and openly. It's oftentimes far less than what Paul and Silas endured in prison, isn't it? This brings me to the last thing that we find in these three changed lives here in Acts 16 that we cannot forget when it comes to joy and our rejoicing and our celebrating. Guys, the final touches on our joy are found in being bound together. Simply this, guys, by celebrating in the life of the church, in the context of community, we become and we experience what we never could alone. I mean, sure, we can rejoice and be happy about things and celebrate in isolation, can't we? But at a certain point, it becomes pretty empty and it becomes pretty hollow. Guys, the joy of the gospel takes place most fully in shared partnership among Christians, brothers and sisters, a body of believers. Guys, Christians are a body. Christ is the head. We are the bricks that are mortared into the building and Christ is the chief cornerstone, Paul would tell us. Our connection to Christ necessarily involves connection with other believers. We talked about this last week. All of us are bound together. We cannot properly rejoice by ourselves. Guys, the answer to joy is abundantly clear as we look at Acts 16 here. Find it in the gospel. Find it in celebrating and changed lives around you. And lastly, we must not live the Christian life solely as though we have an individual relationship with God. Our faith is very personal, but it is also very communal. Guys, no Christian, no believer will experience true joy apart from fellowship in the body of Christ any more than an amputated finger will be healthy. An old English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, if there is anything wrong in my relationship to God, 
I lose fellowship, and I lose joy. Yes, but if there is anything wrong in my relationship to Christian brothers and sisters, I also lose the joy. You lose contact with the brethren, you lose contact with God, you lose your love to God in the same way, he says. What a wise and insightful observation. Notice the end, guys. I don't want you to miss this verse. At the end of Acts chapter 16, verse 34, again, what does it say there? He, this man, this Philippian jailer, brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them. And he and his entire household, and I can only imagine Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, rejoiced because they all believed in God. This man was carried from incapacitating fear to abounding joy in just a couple of minutes. Just a short time before he was ready to end his life, and now he's filled with joy. Guys, what explains such a radical transformation in a person's life? Jesus. Only Jesus. Guys, the word rejoice is very easy to read, but it's exceedingly hard to practice. Guys, we have a choice to rejoice or not. And what I have tried to make the compelling point this morning that we should do, may we choose to rejoice in the context of the community within the family of God together. We celebrate together. So just a couple things that I want to give you here at the end, just as practical takeaways and applications of what I've said this morning. What we need to do, guys, in our life is we need to fight for joy. It doesn't just come naturally. It doesn't come easily. We need to fight for joy. We do that by taking action to rejoice, by grounding ourselves in the gospel. And then we also need to do this, guys. We need to evaluate how invested you are in the body of Christ. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a real question for you to ask and to answer in your mind and throughout the rest of the day and through this week is evaluate how invested are you in the body of Christ in your giving, in your time, in your gifts. Are you sharing your gifts with the body of Christ? Are you investing in this local body of Christ? Guys, our experience of joy will grow only to the extent that we grow in active fellowship with the body of Christ. Here's what I want to ask this morning. We did this last week. We did a little bit of testimony time. Here's the thing, and this is going to be incredibly awkward for the live stream because they're not going to be able to hear any of this, but that's all right. I want to hear from you this morning we prepare to have the worship team come back up here in just a bit, I want to ask a couple different questions. What good thing or what good things is God doing in your life or in the life of this church that needs to be celebrated today? Again, we can get so down on things. We get so down on how things are going wrong and they're not going right and this should be done better and that should be done better. In your life, what is God doing? In the life of this church, what is God doing that needs to be celebrated today, right now, that we can all rejoice in? And then secondarily, something to think about here is who can you honor right now for their impact in your life as you work out your salvation, as Paul would say? I just want to give some time, again, as the worship team here in a bit just makes their way back up here. I want you to actually not just think about them, be like, oh, those are good questions, right? No, actually, we're going to respond right now to this sermon. What is God doing in your life and life of this church that we can celebrate? And who can you honor right now?
who has helped you in your life to work out your salvation.